Well, thanks again for the opportunity of uh, letting me come up and open God's Word uh, for us all. Um, it's, a, it's a great privilege, and thanks for your prayers, Sam. I know I need them. Um, but it's sort of one of those things like fi- filling the pulpit at Resurrection OC is kind of a, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, this is, I guess this is a pulpit. It's the only one that's by a swimming pool that I know of. Uh, so it's kind of cool, and I always appreciate being with you guys. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 139 this morning, and uh, it, it was a little bit lengthy, so I, uh, Carl uh, graciously printed it in a little insert in the worship folder. So I'd ask you all, if you're able to, if you can stand, it's a little bit longer of a psalm, uh, but if you're able to, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. You may be seated. The uh, kids are going to go. Oh, yeah. If, if, if you're a child and you want to go with uh, Miss Alita, um, you have your soul. parents' permission, you can, you, can, you can go with her. Well, as most of you know, we're finishing a brief series on knowing God. Uh, theology, the study of God, knowing the God of the Bible, thinking big thoughts about Him, matters. Uh, many serious theologians since the early days of Christianity 
made the point that you can't really know yourself or the world unless you know God. They made the case that true self-knowledge rests on an understanding of who God is. So knowing God is, is, is a highly intellectual uh, process, but it's also, it's also deeply personal. Uh, and I've said over the last couple of weeks, when it feels like our emotions and our hearts are spinning out of control in anger or in worry or fear or just feeling low, one of, one of the likely roots, one of the, one of the things that's, that's at least a factor in that is that we are forgetting who God is. And there might be no better place in all of the Bible to see the vastness of God big thoughts about him, um, but also the intensely personal implications of knowing him and knowing the reality of God that in Psalm 139, what we just read. Uh, so this morning, what I want to do is look at three things from, uh, from Psalm 139. First, the beauty of God. Secondly, the danger of God. And then third, the glory of God. So the beauty of God, uh, the danger of God, and then the glory of God. Uh, if you've if you've got Psalm 139 in front of you, you want to take out open your Bibles or uh, take out that insert. In verses one through 18, you sort of see um, they sort of form verses one through 18 a kind of mini systematic theology of God. Uh, the past several weeks, we've looked at different attributes or characteristics of God that He shares with human beings, that He shares with people, things like justice and compassion and truth. Uh, and God has those attributes, and part of what it means to be made in his image, made in his likeness, uh, as the Old Testament says, is in part that we reflect and mirror those realities in a finite, creaturely way. Uh, the, the truth about justice and compassion and truth and mercy and love is that God mysteriously somehow shares those attributes with us. That's what it means to be made in his image. But what you see in Psalm 139 are what theologians call the incommunicable attributes of God. That's the sort of the big 50 cent word the, uh, that theologians use, the incommunicable attributes of God. And what that means is those are characteristics of God that are only true about God. They cannot be true of you and me. These are the realities that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all things. Uh, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, always, at the same time. And God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is in complete control of everything that happens or will happen. So let's take each of those three incommunicable attributes, the omni-attributes of God, uh, in turn. First, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. That's verses 1 through 6. Uh, and you see that knowing words are all throughout verses 1 through 6. Uh, the word search, uh, know, known, he discerns. Uh, the idea of knowledge, some translations say observe or perceive. God, the, the truth that the psalmist, the poet here is saying is God knows your entire life. Whether you're sitting down, rising up, thinking, walking, uh, lying down, speaking, God knows it all. He knows everything uh, about you, inside and out. Uh, you probably have had the experience of sitting across from someone, maybe it's a loved one or a child, 
or, or a coworker or a boss or something like that and asking yourself what what in the world is going on in this person's head uh, what is this person thinking but not God God doesn't he never has that question uh, he knows he knows your internal world he knows your daydreams he knows uh, all of your thoughts they're all laid bare they're all exposed uh, to God and the psalmist says he knows you, but he also surrounds you. That ver- that's verses 7 through 12. God knows it all. He's omniscient. Uh, and he is also everywhere, always. He, he's omnipresent. This God surrounds us with his presence. And notice what the poet does. Uh, just like in verse uh, verses 1 through 6, where he kind of uses the polarities of human experience, uh, waking up, lying down, thinking, speaking. He uses kind of the polarities of human uh, behavior. Uh, That's what he does in verses 7 through 12, except with kind of geographical uh, or geographic extremes, just to show how vast God is. Ascending to heaven or descending to Sheol. See, ascending to heaven is just basically as far as you can go into outer space, there's God. And Sheol was... What the Old Testament uh, talked about, you, you know, they, they used the word Sheol to describe the, the, bo- the bottom of the earth. It was the grave. It was the pit. It was as low as you could go in the earth. It was the low parts of the earth. So I can go up. I can go down. God's still there. And then he goes on to talk about the wings of the morning. That's the east, the place where the sun comes up every morning. And then the uttermost parts of the sea, that's to the west. If you think about ancient Israel... Uh, the great sea that was to the west of them was the Mediterranean Sea. And beyond the sea was what they viewed as the ends of the earth. They were limited in terms of their understanding of geography. Uh, But that was the ends of the earth to them. So as far as you could go east, as far as you could go west, God was still there. And then finally, God is omnipotent. He knows everything. He's he's omnipresent, but he's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. That's verses 13 through 18. Look at verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts. Literally, uh, the Hebrew is, you, you created or you acquired my kidneys. And kidneys were sort of the Hebrew phrase that would stand for the, the inner person, your soul, your emotional self, your, your personal self, your true self. Uh, and then you knitted me together in my mother's womb. That was the Old Testament way of saying your body. God formed your body. He formed all of you, body and soul. Uh, God, as the omnipotent one, as the creator, made all of you. And then in verse 16, he says, not only did he create you, uh, but he upholds your entire history. He upholds all of your days. He upholds and plans and governs your entire life. One um, translator one author put it like this, verse 16. He says, All the stages of my life were spread out before you. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. So from conception to your final breath, to your final, your last breath, God's in charge. That's God's territory. He rules all of that. Uh, that's why throughout the history of Christianity... Um, and even even uh, earlier, uh, you know, the sort of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, that's why they prize the idea of human life at all of its stages, at all of its various stages, because that was 
That's God's territory. That's part of what he governs. He and he alone rules over that. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is just for us for a few moments on a Sunday morning to reflect on the beauty of God. Uh, to just pause and meditate on the wonder of God. And if you're a Christ follower here this morning, if you're a disciple of Jesus, um, the question is, do you see for a moment the God that you have come to worship this morning? He's a God who has been intimately, personally, creatively engaged in every part of who you are. Your personalities, your histories, the family you were born into, the century that you live in, your likes, your dislikes, your Enneagram type, the shape of your body, your passions. God is involved in all of that. That's extraordinary. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. And so just pause for a moment and reflect on that. Isn't, isn't this God lovely? Isn't he beautiful? You know, the poet, as he was, at least as I imagine him writing this, this poem... Uh, thousands of years ago, he was reflecting on these realities, the beauties of God, uh, and it drove him to utter amazement. You see that um, in verse um, in verse six, he says, where he says, "Such knowledge." He's reflecting on this idea that God is all powerful, that he's he knows everything, that he's everywhere, and he says, "Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high; I cannot attain it." And that's that's the Hebraic. That's the Old Testament way of saying mind blown. Uh, insert the mind blown emoji right here because this God is too vast. When I consider this God, I cannot wrap my head around it. That's what he's saying. But I wonder if you got the sense, as I did as I was reflecting on this, uh, on this psalm earlier this week, that maybe uh, the sort of wonder and awe and amazement at the beauty of God uh, wasn't the only thing that this poet was feeling. Uh, you know, there's a sense of awe that I think some of us get, most of us get, maybe some of you don't get this, but when you're, when you're sort of out in the surf on a summer day or you're at the summit of Mount Whitney or you're on the rim of the Grand Canyon and there's just this sort of overwhelming sense of awe, the majesty of that, the beauty of that, um, you know, if you, if you believe in the reality of God, sort of idea that God created all this with his fingertips. And it's an awe that you basically enjoy. It's just, you kind of sit back and reflect and it's beautiful, it's amazing. You can experience that here now, at, you know, in Carl's backyard. But I, am, I can imagine that there's a more, there's, and you probably experience this at some time too, that there's a kind of awe that's, um, that's similar but also distinct if you came sort of face to face with a, something like a lion. Uh, you'd be in awe at the majesty of a creature like that, um, but also scared for your life. There's great beauty in sort of a giant wild cat like a lion or a tiger. Um, but there's also very real danger. This is why they're in cages and, uh, you know, uh, you know, parks that house big cats and things like that you know a lot of the employees don't get don't work there long without getting mauled by something uh, you might appreciate the enormity of a beast like that but you would at times want to run for your life and i think there's hints in psalm uh, 139 
that this is kind of the dread and sort of the anxiety that the poet is feeling. He sees the beauty of God. He sees God in just his grandeur and majesty, and his mind is blown. But no sooner does he say that than in verse 7 he says, he asks this question, how can I get away from you? Where shall I go from your spirit? Uh, Where shall I flee from your presence? You know, the word, uh, the Hebrew word for presence is the word, it's actually the word for face. The poet is asking, how can I flee from God's face? Uh, He's about to pull, he's about to pull a Jonah. You remember Jonah and the big fish, right? Jonah was a prophet in the nation of Israel uh, who at one time, who was given a task. He was given a mission by God. He basically asked this, this exact same question. How can I flee from God's face? It's the same, it's the same word that is used in the Old Testament book of, of Jonah. How can I get away from you? Uh, and you? And you know why, don't you? I mean, Jonah is asking this question, how can I flee from God? Um, the psalmist in, in Psalm 139 is asking the same question. And think about it. Why are they asking this question? Don't we have, don't we all share kind of an instinctual insurgence when people try and watch our every move, when people try to govern our whole life, um, I'm sure I wasn't the only teenager in the world who balked at the idea of, of telling my mom everywhere I was going to be on a Friday night. Uh, we have a natural drive towards independence, towards freedom, right? Don't, don't you share this? No, we don't like our boss or our parents or our governments seeing what we're doing, monitoring our search histories, tracking our movements. Uh, we want to flee that. We want to escape that. How can I get away from that? Uh, what, what software can I buy so that like Big Brother can't spy on me? Yet the scriptures say, this is the God of the Bible. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. God knows everything about you. Your whole history is not just exposed. It's actually ordained by him. He knows it all, and he's always with you. Even when you think you're alone, even when you think that nobody else is watching, there he is. That's the God of the scriptures. You cannot escape him. And human beings rebel against that reality. We all do. We try to find covering. We try to find some place to hide. That's verse uh, 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, Right? What is the what is the poet saying? He's saying, it, "Give me some place to hide. Give me some something to cover me uh, to cover over me, so that I can escape this God." Uh, he wants to get the darkness even to cover him. For a for a for an Old Testament Hebrew to say something like that would have been shocking. I mean, the darkness was in a sense, um, it was the place of fear, of of dread, of death. Um, it's because there's something in all of us that is both drawn in by the beauty of God, drawn in by the grandeur of God, and yet at the exact same time, we find it revolting. We find him threatening. We want something or someone who can give us security and hope and significance, and yet we don't want a God who has this much control, this much authority, who is as this close as that God. The poet in Psalm 139 felt that, I feel it, and I imagine that sometimes uh, you do as well. See, so the poet experiences the beauty and majesty of God. 
Uh, he sees the beauty of God, that God is essentially unfathomable. We, can't, we cannot wrap our minds around him. And this instills a sense of awe, but also a feeling of escape, of hiding, of fleeing from this God. But if you, if you, if you followed along uh, through the poem, you see in verse 17, he, he, there's, some, there's some kind of transformation that takes place. Something happens uh, within this poet, and he exclaims in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. That, that word precious is a, is a kind of, it's literally kind of a weighty word in Hebrew. It literally means something that's costly or, or, or expensive or highly valued, like a precious metal or a precious stone. See, something about this poet's experience of God has changed. Something's been transformed. And then in verse 18, he says, I awake and I am still with you. And you know, that's interesting. That, that phrase that he uses in, in verse 18, uh, I awake and I am still with you. And it's interesting because um, we read that and as English speakers, we sort of say, you know, it sounds like he's just talking about getting out of bed in the morning. But the poet has already talked about sort of rising and waking in verse 2 of the poem. He's implying... I think something, and you know, most, a lot of the commentators will say he's implying something that's actually much more profound than just rising from sleep. See, in the Old Testament, uh, the word for sleeping uh, or the word for awaking could imply a night's rest. It could just imply going to bed and having a good night's rest, but it could also stand for the sleep of death. It could stand for the idea of death itself, the experience of dying. So I think actually part of what this poet is now experiencing as he's reflecting on the beauty of God and the danger of God is that he's come to know somehow mysteriously because God is who he is, not even death itself can separate him from this God. He's coming to this mysterious understanding that, look, if God is omniscient, if he knows all things, if he's everywhere, if he's this powerful, then not even death itself, not even the experience of death can separate him from God. This is a God who is so present. He's so near me that even in death, he's with me. This God knows me so fully that even in death, I won't be lost. I won't be lost to this God. I'll, I'll somehow be my true self, even through the experience of dying, God will still be with me. And the question, I think, for us, um, at, at all the stages of our life, um, is how can we have that kind of hope? How can we know that a God who has all of those attributes, not just justice and compassion and truth and things like that, but a God who, who governs everything, who knows me uh, to, to the very bottom of who I am, how can we know that this God will be with me even in death? How do we have that kind of confidence? That God is not something that we need to escape or run from, but someone that we can actually turn to in all of our troubles, in suffering, in hopelessness, in despair, and even when we're facing death itself. And you know, surprisingly, I think the answer is found in verses 19 through 24, in these sort of odd verses. I don't know uh, about you, especially I think if you're maybe new to the Bible, 
or unfamiliar with the book of Psalms, um, those verses at the end of Psalm 139 might have jolted you a little bit. Uh, It's sort of a nice kind of uh, decent poem reflecting on the beauty of God. And then all of a sudden in verses 19 through 24, it takes this radical turn and the poet starts talking about God slaying the wicked and, uh, and hating people with a complete hatred. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of what, what in the world is going on. It sort of jolts our 21st century sensibilities. Well, I want you to notice a couple things about um, those verses. First, if you drop down to verses 23 and 24, look at what the poet is inviting. Look at what he's asking God to do. He's, he's essentially asking God to search him. To utter, to, he's just sort of laying it all before the Lord. Remember earlier in the poem, God's his all-knowing, his his omniscience um, was perceived as a threat. God, you know everything, and that's something I want to hide from. I, that's something I want to flee. But here, the poet actually invites it at the end of the poem. He's saying, "Search me." Uh, he welcomes God looking into his life. He wants to be transparent. He wants God to speak to him about things that aren't right in his life. Now, that's true humility. That's a kind of humility that you don't see often. Uh, Those of you who are managers or have direct reports or people who are working underneath you, I, I imagine this is not something that occurs often where people come to you and say, you know, I want you to tell me all the things that I'm not doing right in my performance. I want you, I'm inviting sort of critical feedback. Um, you know, I mean, it's sort of, I can barely handle negative feedback or criticism in my own marriage or in my own family life without sort of losing my cool and becoming uh, defensive and angry. So the question is, how is this poet in, in Psalm 139 asking for that kind of scrutiny, that level of scrutiny, not just sort of what's wrong with my work performance, but tell me something wrong with my heart with the trajectory of my life, with my deepest hopes and desires. So you look at that and you see just the true humility of the poet. Something has happened in this poet's life. And then you look at uh, verses 19 through 22. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that verses 19 through 22, you don't find anything like verses 19 through 22 in the New Testament. You don't see Paul or the early Christians, um, people like Peter or John or James, asking God to slay sinners. Uh, You don't see people like Paul saying, I hate the wicked with the complete hatred. And it's actually not just that you don't see prayers like that in the New Testament, but you actually see commands to do the exact opposite. Uh, You see the early church teaching people to love their enemies. This is what made Christianity in the first few centuries completely radical. Because not only did people uh, not pray prayers to slay the wicked, but actually they were praying prayers that God would love their enemies, that God would uh, turn their enemies um, around, uh, that, uh, that, that the very people that were persecuting and oppressing early Christians those Christians were praying for them, that God would do them good. Why? Uh, Why can't we pray that God would slay sinners? Because at the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of the Christian story, is something that the poet in Psalm 139 only perceived dimly. 
it was something that he couldn't possibly imagine in its fullness. It was that at the heart of Psalm 139 is not just a God who's omniscient and omnipresent and, um, uh, you know, knows everything, is everywhere, controls all things, but at the heart of 139 is a God who would be slain for sinners. This poet prayed that God would slay the wicked and that God would be with him in death. But what he didn't know or, or even begin to fully understand is that God would come in the flesh, that Jesus would come to die for the wicked and even to pray for them while he was being executed. Did you know on the cross we hear Jesus saying two prayers? Uh, one of them is drawn from the Psalms. Uh, on the one hand, Jesus is praying for something far more radical uh, than what Psalm 139 says. Not that God would pay back his enemies, but that God would forgive the very people who were abusing and killing him. Jesus prayed that prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's praying for forgiveness, not judgment. And in those exact same moments on the cross, Jesus prays that God would not abandon him. See, Jesus knew Psalm 139. Uh, he was God in the flesh. He knew that his father was everywhere, knew everything, was in control of all things. He knew that God was omnipresent. And yet in that moment, he was experiencing God as being far off, as, as having God's face turned away from, from Jesus. He felt like in those moments he was losing the very presence of God. And why was that? See, in our sin, uh, we, we seek to escape God. We flee God's face. We try to hide in the darkness. And the penalty for that, the Bible says that the penalty for sin is that we would be lost in darkness, that we would be abandoned, that we'd, we'd be left alone uh, in darkness. And so you see, that's exactly where Jesus found himself on the cross, alone, abandoned, in the darkness of Golgotha in the middle of the day. He's getting what I deserve. He's getting what you deserve. He's paying the penalty for our, our attempted flights and escapes from God. And so friends, if you believe in Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are leaning the weight of your life on this Jesus, you can know, you can really know that God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You can know that this God has already been to death and back for you. You can know that even when you sleep the sleep of death, you will awaken in resurrection joy, just like your Savior. That's an unshakable confidence. That's a hope that nothing, nothing can even remotely come close to. You can endure... Friends, you can endure anything if you have that comfort. So can you imagine, can you imagine what your life would be like, how your life might change if you knew that not even death could separate you from God, not even death itself? Friends, that's a precious thought. And may we meditate on that this week. Not even death itself can separate you from God if you are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, um, you are you are beauty beyond our, our wildest imaginations. You are glorious. You are majestic. Uh, just as we read earlier in the in the service about your voice uh, shaking the universe, just the very words of your mouth have power in them far beyond our wildest dreams. And yet all of that power, all of that authority, all of that might, all of that beauty um, is threatening to us because we know that we are sinful. And yet you have promised us in the gospel that you have provided a way of escape, a way to cover over our sin that we didn't devise ourselves, but is instead a plan that you have ordained since before the foundations of the world to send your one and only Son to be a rescue for sinners. We praise you because Jesus took that curse, the curse of our running away from you, onto himself so that we could be freed, so that we could know that nothing in all of this universe, nothing can separate you, nothing can separate us from your love. So Father, bless us with these truths especially as we come to your table. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.